digging deeper into the Twitter hack. The NSA's former CISO on reassessing security infrastructure for the hybrid worker. And the latest form of virtual currency, PPE. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. It's not been a good week to be a Twitter celebrity, again. Last week, Twitter says attackers hijacked more than 130 high-profile accounts using social engineering to bypass defences, including two-factor authentication. It's now come to light that what seemed like a basic cryptocurrency scam is somewhat more nefarious, as we've discovered that of the 130 accounts that were hijacked, 36 of them had personal data compromised. With more on this story, it's ICMG's Executive Editor of Data Breach Today and Europe, Matthew Schwartz. Bad news for 36 users of Twitter, including one elected official in the Netherlands. Last week, attackers were able to read all of their direct messages sent using Twitter. These, of course, are supposed to be private. And the incident is a reminder that any written communications sent via the internet can potentially be intercepted or later obtained, no matter how private they're meant to be. News of the direct messages being accessed follows Twitter's Saturday admission that someone subverted its employees and gained control of 45 high-profile Twitter accounts. One reaction has been, why didn't anyone crack Twitter sooner? Indeed, the vulnerability exploited by attackers, Twitter said, was nothing more than social engineering, after which at least some of the attackers tried to cash in by using the seized accounts to push cryptocurrency scams. The likes of Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Barack Obama, and Joe Biden boasted that all of the Bitcoins sent to their cryptocurrency wallets would be sent back, doubled. What a great deal. So much so that the attackers who posted the fraudulent messages earned $121,000 worth of Bitcoins. Needless to say, what would have been the $240,000 sent in return has yet to appear. Twitter says the attackers targeted 130 accounts, managing to seize control of 45 of them. For 36 of the targeted accounts, as mentioned, attackers were also able to access their direct message inbox. So far, Twitter has been largely mum on exactly how this happened, except to say that employees were manipulated into performing certain actions and divulging confidential information, thus gaining access to Twitter's internal systems and also managing to bypass two-factor authentication protection. So, why hasn't this sort of thing happened before? Unfortunately, it has. It was just last November when the U.S. Department of Justice charged three men with perpetrating a campaign to infiltrate Twitter and spy on critics of the Saudi government. Instead of the Saudis pushing cryptocurrency scams, they potentially used the information gleaned from two now-former Twitter insiders to kidnap or assassinate critics. Of course, there are other key differences between the two cases. As alleged in the U.S. indictment, the Saudis convinced two now-former Twitter employees to use their employee credentials to gain access without authorization to certain non-public information about the individuals behind certain Twitter accounts, the Justice Department says. The two former employees would have been well-placed for such efforts. One worked as a site reliability engineer, while another worked as Twitter's media partnership manager for the Middle East and North Africa, and regularly assisted journalists and celebrities. 
in return for sharing information with the Saudis, including more than 6,000 Twitter users' private details, both men allegedly received goods and payments in return. For example, prosecutors say the former media partnership manager saw $100,000 get wired to a close relative in Beirut. He allegedly also received a gold watch that he then tried to sell on Craigslist for $20,000. In the bigger picture, last week's security failure at Twitter points to the clear and present danger posed to organizations by insiders, whether they're outright malicious or may have been bribed or coerced or maybe socially engineered and their insider credentials stolen and put to use by others. The Twitter attack was also noisy. Security experts warned that well-resourced nation-states typically operate in a much more stealthy fashion. Rather than hacking, they'll typically opt instead to place their own agent or to subvert an existing insider to get what they want. And don't expect them to reveal themselves by seizing user accounts and running cryptocurrency scams. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Now four months into the COVID-19 pandemic, many companies are now assessing the return of workers to an office environment and the structures for a hybrid workforce. In doing so, CISOs need to reassess their security risk infrastructure. This week, Hannah Delaney spoke with Chris Kubik of Fidelis Cybersecurity and former CISO at the NSA, who provided some wisdom on the new threats that this hybrid model poses for organisations. So Chris, we're entering this new phase of remote working, this hybrid model. What are the new threats that this hybrid model poses for organisations? Uh, well, I think there's a, you know, a couple of uh, challenges when we, we move in the hybrid model. And just, just to be clear that, you know, you know, what we're talking about there is, uh, you know, you know, we rush to get a lot of uh, capabilities in place when the COVID-19 uh, virus started taking effect and, uh, you know, move to work at home. Uh, for a hybrid, you know, I, I see that we're going to continue to be working at home largely, you know, into next year. Uh, but however, you know, some companies are starting to talk about return to the office. Some have started to return some of their employees to the office. Um, and so so this hybrid model is essentially uh, where you have part of your workforce uh, in the office, probably a large portion of your workforce still working at home. Um, and for the folks in the office, you know, it, it could be critical folks that need to be there every day to support operations. But more likely, it's, it's kind of a rotating group of people, um, you know, coming and going into the office. Uh, you know, maybe they're working shifts or uh you know, lots of different ways that, uh, you know, kind of divide up. But, you know, the overall goal there is to reduce the population at the office in order to maintain social distancing. Uh, so so I, I kind of view that most people will be rotating the, the employees in and out of the office, giving everybody an opportunity to come into the office if they choose. Um, so I think the big challenge there is, um, and, and it kind of depends on what your work at home security architecture looks like, but uh, you know, I think a large, a lot of the larger corporations have, have sort of the traditional VPN based security model where, uh, you know, folks, uh, working at home have a corporate laptop and, um, you know, certainly they'll be, you know, sort of traveling back and forth with that laptop into the office. So, uh, so I think the new challenge there is you have a, you know, you have devices that have been on work at home networks, 
um, you know, much more exposed to the internet than they are when they're in the corporate infrastructure. And so um, you're now bringing those potentially, you know, compromised devices and plugging them into your corporate network again. So, so I think um, people need to be prepared to, uh, you know, for some potential incidents there and they need to ensure that they have, you know, good, uh, internal monitoring, some sort of, uh, you know, network detection and response capability that can monitor the internal traffic of their network because most uh, security architectures are built to really monitor the traffic coming and going from the internet. And in this case, you basically have plugged in a device behind that internet boundary and, and could expose your corporate network. So, so I think that's the biggest challenge there. Um, I think another challenge is uh, particularly you know, as, as folks worked at home, a lot of the corporate data that, that probably sat in corporate repositories, uh, you know, uh, has now kind of migrated out to the endpoints for people working at home so that they can work offline, et cetera. So, so I think one of the challenges is how do you corral that data now and, and sort of get it back under the corporate controls that you had in place, ensure that you maintain that corporate record and that you're uh, appropriately um, protecting your, you know, sensitive uh, information, your, your uh, intellectual property, et cetera. Uh, and then I think this is also another challenge is, um, uh, you know, I don't see work at home going away anytime soon. So, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people rush to get architectures in place for work at home, expecting they were going to be there for a month or two. Um, I think for the long haul, it's, it's a good opportunity to kind of step back and reevaluate those work at home architectures to uh, maybe reinforce them a bit and, and, and put in place a more robust architecture for the long haul um, if, if that hasn't already been done. Finally this week, there's a new virtual currency in town called PPE. That's according to Deborah Geister, who is CEO of Section 2 FIS. Her organisation has been focusing on countering the money laundering capabilities of hybrid threat actors such as Hezbollah, Hamas, ISIS and the Sinaloa cartel. Obviously in a pandemic, laundering money through traditional channels such as the car wash in Breaking Bad, isn't quite possible given the highly reduced business volume and therefore circulation of notes. So what's the enterprising money launderer going to do? Apparently, look to cryptocurrencies and other forms of fungible assets can act as surrogates for currencies, including personal protective equipment. I spoke to Deborah this week and I asked her about PPE becoming the new currency of choice for money laundering. Yeah, we've seen... Um PPE kind of become the new currency, if you will, because if you think about it with the uh, advent of COVID, they typically would launder, you know, everybody's watched Ozark, right? So you'd launder funds through things like um, restaurants, um, convenience stores, those cash-based businesses that is easy to be able to, to push funds through. Those are no longer as available and the, the revenues are greatly reduced in those streams. So they're looking for new ways, right? So we're seeing things like cryptocurrency becoming a much bigger factor in how um, these hybrid threat groups launder funds. We're also seeing PPE become kind of a new currency. Mm -hmm. And so in order to make sure that we don't allow those kinds of hybrid threat groups to be able to launder funds through PPE, we're doing KYC. Now, is it required? No, not necessarily, but the companies that we're working with are trying to be prudent and to be able to uh, to do a good job of vetting. And quite honestly, we found um, many uh, groups <laughs> that we didn't want to do business with, right? Um, as we're doing our KYC, um, it was it was a very good business practice, right? To be able to to look at them from a KYC perspective and look at the risk. Okay, I find that fascinating. That again, in in times of distress, 
surrogates become currencies. And I think certainly, again, it is, I think it's fascinating that, that PPE, because it's, I guess it's fungibility, has now become a, a, a pseudo-financial asset, right? Well, anything that is of value, right, can right. be turned into a, into a mechanism for, for moving funds. So as long as you can transfer that value, and one of the attractive parts of PPE is that it's a, it's a high-demand item right now, right? right? Everybody is seeking that, and so there's a huge market, more so even right. um, than the cash base. Well, it's also universal, right? I mean, it's something that has a universal, again, it's, it's not like a dollar or a yen or whatever. I mean, it's something that is globally accepted. Exactly. So, yeah, we're seeing, we're seeing a big uptick. And, of course, there's a lot of um, PPE companies that are, that are coming into the market. There's a lot of um, organizations that are looking for uh, opportunistic uh, type of situations. So we got when those types of things arise, you have to make sure that we're doing a good job of due diligence or it does become the Wild West. That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.